HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This week on Meet and 3, it's all about screens. We're diving into the world of TV, computers, and even VR to figure out how food consumption is shifted by a digital lens. Every course talks about a different topic within the Asian American identity through a very personal lens. And the three courses that are paired with VR, in it you're seeing a brushstroke by brushstroke recreation of the dish that you're about to eat. Most of us in the world live in urban areas. And so how much is the city already accidentally providing its residents? And how much more could it provide if um, we just made it a priority? Tune in to Meet and 3. HRN's weekly food news roundup wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to The Big Food Question, a podcast exploring the most urgent questions from a food industry in crisis. I'm Kat Johnson, HRN's communications director, and today we're asking, why are USDA waivers crucial to school lunch programs? As millions of kids returned to school over the past month, one of the biggest question marks remained how to provide nutritious meals to them, especially as many school systems began the year with fully remote schedules. To understand the role that USDA played in making food accessible for students, I turned to Jessica Fu. I'm a staff writer for The Counter, a publication covering food policy. Recently, I've been reporting on school meal policy, as well as COVID-related supply chain disruptions. For some background, before the pandemic, most kids paid for school lunch unless they qualified for free or reduced lunch due to income. USDA issued a handful of regulatory waivers throughout the spring, giving schools the green light to, to feed kids grab-and-go meals to allow parents to pick up food on behalf of their children and also to serve all kids in a community at no cost, regardless of where they're enrolled or their age. This flexibility is important because of the wide range of needs that families with school-aged children may have. A very common scenario is that a family will have multiple children and some of those children might be enrolled students, while others might be toddlers, they might be enrolled in a private institution, or they might just not be of age yet to attend a given school. So schools were kind of put in the difficult place of having to tell parents, 
I can give you one set of meals for the student you have enrolled at this district, um, but for your two toddlers, they'll have to go home empty-handed. Those waivers expired at the end of August, and school nutrition directors began asking the USDA for an extension so they could continue to be flexible in how, when, and where they serve food. I spoke to Jessica on September 1st, and she recapped how quickly things changed. Lawmakers joined the fray and started asking USDA and pressuring USDA to allow schools to serve food to all kids at no cost through the 2020-2021 school year. Um, As late as last week, USDA's position was that it didn't have the funding or authorization from Congress to do so. Yesterday, August 31st, that changed. Um, The agency changed course and is now allowing schools to serve free meals to all kids through the end of 2020. Where exactly did the USDA so quickly come up with these extra funds? It's hard to really tell. Um, I reached out to USDA to ask about this decision. Their position right now is that they recalculated uh, the amount of funding that they expect to need to support these waivers through the end of the year and found that, yes, there is enough um, to last through December 31st, 2020. But a lot of school nutrition directors are are a little frustrated because they've been planning as if these waivers weren't going to be extended, and now they kind of have to ramp up uh, to meet demand again. Despite the back and forth, these waivers are an overwhelmingly positive thing for school systems. From what I've understood in conversations with nutrition directors, This extension is actually great for their lunch programs uh, because now they can ramp up production. What happens is USDA reimburses schools on a per-meal basis. So the more they serve, the more revenue they can bring in from their school lunch program. One thing that comes up a lot in my conversations with nutrition directors is The issue of higher costs during COVID, there's the additional cost of PPE for their staffers or the additional cost of packaging for grab-and-go meals. One thing that comes up a lot is that food shortages from their suppliers mean that sometimes they have to turn um, to retailers to fill in gaps in their supplies, and those cost a lot more. So I understand that a number of school nutrition directors, as well as groups representing them, those people are lobbying USDA to increase their per-meal reimbursement rates to cover those costs. And I've also heard from school nutrition directors who have gone further to say that Maybe these waivers should be extended until the coronavirus is over, the pandemic is over, and as long as the crisis is still in place, then they need all the flexibility they can get to serve as many kids as they can. There's a lot of concern among the nutrition directors that I've spoken to that USDA is issuing waivers as they go, and it doesn't really give schools and school meal programs the uh, ability to plan in advance for 
any possible challenge that might arise in the future that no one might be able to predict at the current moment. So my sense from nutrition directors is that what would be most helpful is the, the flexibility, the green light to uh, feed kids as they can, given their local circumstances, and um, get reimbursed for it and not have to worry about the paperwork and the bureaucracy and the, the possibility of not getting reimbursed. I understand that a number of school districts are still intending to reopen later in September or early October, and I'm really interested in following just how nutrition directors uh, manage to diversify their operations in a way that can both serve people who are coming to school, people who are staying at home, people who um, rely on grab and go and people who are now showing up in cafeterias because then you're kind of juggling a, a lot more all at once. What I've gathered from my reporting so far is that schools are kind of serving as these de facto community feeding centers. Oftentimes school districts are partnering up with community-based nonprofit organizations to feed families to uh, put together meal packs, not just for children, but to supplement those meal packs with donated food for an entire household. Um, so they've become a pretty integral hunger relief um, entity. And uh, I think that gives them a really important role during a crisis like this. Thanks to Jessica Fu for helping us understand how important the USDA waivers are in allowing school cafeterias to feed students during the pandemic. Despite the additional flexibility that these waivers allow, some families are still facing major hurdles. Earlier this week, NPR reported that only about 15% of low-income households with children who qualify for free or reduced lunch have actually been getting those meals. One major reason is because parents can't get away from work to pick up food from designated spots. So nutrition directors are having to get even more creative and flexible. In episode 87 of Meet and 3, we explore how some schools in Alabama are delivering lunches via school bus routes. You can listen to that wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to The Big Food Question. Stick around to hear what makes our show possible. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com.
Don't forget to subscribe to The Big Food Question wherever you get your podcasts. Check back often as we address critical questions for eaters, operators, and workers across food topics and business sectors. If you have questions you'd like this show to answer, you can email us at question at heritageradionetwork.org. Special thanks for this episode to Jessica Fu of The Counter. Read more of her work at thecounter.org. The Big Food Question is produced by Katie Mosman-Wadler, Hannah Forden, Dylan Hoyer, Matt Patterson, Luke Griffin, Jenny Dorsey, Kevin Chang-Barnum, and me, Kat Johnson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. The Big Food Question is powered by Simplecast. The content of this series is provided for general information only and should not be considered professional advice. You should obtain professional or specialist advice before taking or refraining from any action on the basis of this content. This project is funded in part by a Humanities New York CARES grant with support from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Federal CARES Act. This program is also supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. The Big Food Question is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio.